Good evening. I'm here tonight with Farage at Large, and we are in Redcar. Yes, we are absolutely in one of the most important bricks in what became that Conservative red wall. You know, word association test. Red car, Conservative MP, no, it doesn't work. But it did in 2019. I wasn't that surprised. I'd seen areas like red car, I'd seen Teesside in the referendum, big votes for Brexit, uh, a sense of alienation from the Labour Party, particularly Jeremy Corbyn's led Labour Party, which didn't look to be that patriotic. And hey, they were voting UKIP, Brexit Party, all sorts of different parties up here. Something felt up here that London had become completely and utterly disconnected. Well, of course, what we've had for the last few months is a psychodrama going on within the Conservative Party, and we'll be here today with Jacob Young, who is the Member of Parliament now for Redcar. We'll talk to him about that and many other things. But just bear this in mind at home. Back in 2015, the steelworks here in Redcar closed. It had a catastrophic effect, not just on those men and women working in the steelworks, but actually the supply chains, the knock-on in the whole area. It was devastating. And when you come to understand that one of the reasons that steelworks closed is because we have some of the most expensive energy prices in the world, and you realise that steel production just went straight to India, where the steel was produced under lower environmental standards and then many of the products shipped back to England anyway. You realise we have been pursuing an absolutely crazy industrial policy and it's towns like Redcar that have paid the price. Now, in the wake of all of that, I wasn't surprised they voted Brexit. I wasn't surprised they voted for a new start. And we will, during the evening, talk about the relative merits of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. But isn't it interesting? Thus far in the debate, it's all about tax. Should taxes stay where they are or should taxes go down? But there's one issue, and I've campaigned for years all over the North East, and I believe one of the big reasons the North East voted for Brexit gave absolutely the benefit of the doubt to Boris Johnson and his candidates in 2019 is they believed that Brexit would get us back control of our borders. Immigration's not even been mentioned thus far in this leadership debate, and the smug, the great and the good in London, those who are part of most, not all, mainstream media, think that immigration as an issue has gone away and that no one cares. Well, I'm here in Redcar to test that argument. I think they're wrong. I think people really care about levels of legal and especially illegal immigration. And unless the People's Channel, like GB News, can show to those in Westminster that people out here care, they will go on ignoring us on this issue. So to you at home, the question I want to ask, does immigration still matter as an issue? Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, GB News' Home Affairs editor and security editor Mark White produced this package earlier on today in the light of two reports that came out overnight on the cross-channel border crisis. For more than three years now, the small boats crisis has been growing in intensity. This year already, more than 15,000 people have crossed the channel and been processed in makeshift reception centres at Dover Harbour. The Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration claims that process has been inefficient and ineffective. 
David Neal says that for too long the Home Office has continued to treat the problem of small boat crossings as a crisis rather than an ongoing day-to-day -day issue that should be managed and staffed accordingly. Although he praised the work of individual Border Force officers dealing with at times unmanageable numbers, he was critical of the management of the processing system which meant that staff dealing with many of those arriving in Dover often failed to record all the necessary details of an individual, such as biometric details like fingerprints and photographs. The Chief Inspector of Borders revealed that 227 asylum seekers had disappeared from secure hotel accommodation in the four months to January this year. They haven't been found, and authorities did not have biometric details for many of them. In fact, over one five-week period, when 57 asylum seekers ran off, Border Force didn't have fingerprints or photographs for two-thirds of them. The Home Office said that since David Neal's inspection, new processing facilities have come on stream that those arriving in Dover and elsewhere are much more efficiently processed. However, Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper said she was sceptical of those Home Office claims, especially as the inspector's report was released on the final day of Parliament, giving MPs no time to question officials on any improvements they claim to have made. Mark White, GB News. Well, I don't know about you, I find that absolutely disgraceful and I think dangerous as well. Well, joining me to respond to that and much else besides is the local member of parliament for Redcar, Conservative MP, Jacob Young. Jacob, welcome. I think you were just about the biggest surprise of the 2019 general. How surprised were you? Well, I was supposed to be on nights um, on the day of the election count, and I turned up at the count thinking, you know, I've started with nothing, finished with nothing. And, uh, you know, uh, the rest was history. I remember calling my shift manager saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be at work on Tuesday. And he said, yeah, I know we're watching you on the telly now, mate. So yes, <laughs> it was, no, it was remarkable. Yes. And now you sit here a couple of years on yep. as an MP who was swept in on a tide of Brexit, on, yep. a, on a slight mood of rebellion against what London was doing, and in particular, border controls, which I know, I know folk in the North East yeah. feel very, very, at least I think they feel very strongly about. And you just saw that report. Under a Conservative government with a majority of 80, we've got people crossing the English Channel, young men crossing the English Channel, not even having their fingerprints taken, and disappearing. They could be terrorists, they could be gang criminals, I mean, this is just letting down the country, Jacob. Well, it is natural. I, I don't dispute that at all. And, it's your um, government, your party. Well, I, I know, but as I say, I've called this out a number of times in, in Parliament. And, and I remember the first time I did it, um, about two years ago, I, I spoke in a debate in Westminster Hall. And I was lambasted um, by local Labour politicians, one of the MPs locally and local councillors here, about talking about issues that are uh, hundreds of miles away from us. That's what they said. Um, and I think that, you know, that goes directly to your point about why I won in 2019. Because people People weren't being listened to. No, I get that. And, and the Labour Party still doesn't listen to people. I get that. And to, and to those Labour politicians, 
I would say, far from being hundreds of miles away, there are far more people illegally crossing the channel and then claiming asylum, being settled in hotels yes. and accommodation in the northeast yes. than there are in Surrey, yes. I can yeah. assure you, or any of the home counties. Yes. So it is a very real issue. Yeah. Well, I put it to you that the failure of this government on issues like this, I think even before the row over Boris, and we'll come to that, actually threatens your ability to win this seat again next time round. Well, I, I agree, and, and that's why, you know, so I worked with uh, some other MPs like Lee Anderson uh, down in Ashfield, Brendan Clark Smith in Bassett Law, and we uh, went to the Home Secretary with policy proposals of how we could try and address that. And one of those pro policy proposals was this offshoring plan that we've seen brought in with the uh, Rwanda migration plan. But the plan isn't working at the moment, and we have to do all we can to try and actually plan, get that Rwanda plan working. Jacob, because I think that'll that help. plan is never going to work, yeah. ever going to work. All the while, all the while, all the while, we stay part of the European Convention on Human Rights, yeah. which has been incorporated into law in the Human Rights Act. Now, in the leadership contest, Suella Braverman, I know she got knocked out, but she had the guts to say yeah. we should leave ECHR. We should, to coin a phrase, complete Brexit. I've been using that phrase yeah. on this show, and if Tory candidates, some of them want to use it, I'm delighted. <laughs> Kemi Badnock, I thought, said some very interesting things. Yes. yes. Didn't make it through, but said some interesting things. Brilliant. Brilliant. But do you think either Liz Truss or Jacob Rees-Mogg have got what it takes to deal with this crisis, honestly? Well, um, both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have said that they're willing to look at the ECHR. To look at it? Well, yeah. Oh, wonderful. They've said, well, oh, isn't that great? <laughs> they've, said, they've, they've, said, they've said nothing's off the table, and I, and I, and I believe them when they say that. And you, you mentioned the, the British Bill of Rights and, and changing the definition of the Human Rights Act yeah. in UK law. And so the government's announced today that's going to be debated on the 12th of September, so we are progressing uh, with that. And that, that's whoever the Prime Minister uh, will be on the 5th of September. We're still going to be debating that policy then. And I think you, you, you're quite right, though. We have to look at everything... Um, and we, we can't take anything off the table in trying to solve I, this problem you know, because of the things that we've just heard. Jacob, about. I think the time for looking's gone. Yeah. I think the time's come for acting. I think the time's come for doing things. But anyway, you initially were very supportive of Boris Johnson in the motion of confidence debate, but I think in the end, even you kind of gave up on Boris. I guess, I guess history will say it was a terrible waste. Yeah. Because he had this massive majority, the opportunity to really do things and change things, and his own dishonesty in the end brought him down. We now have Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak. Who are you behind? Well, firstly, I think Boris was an incredible politician and he listened to working-class people in a way that I've not heard other um, uh, politicians be able to, to connect with them and give them um, that, that sense of worth and I, and I pay tribute to him for it and the things that he did in terms of breaking the Brexit deadlock, etc. Um, personally, you know, I'm, I'm supporting Rishi Sunak because of Aye. the efforts that he's made in Teesside, whether that's the Freeport policy here, whether that's bringing the Treasury to Darlington, whether it's bringing the UK Infrastructure Bank down the road uh, to leads but I think you know we've what we've been able to see over the last few weeks is the immense talent in the Conservative Party. You mentioned Kemi Badenoch, and we we got a cheer in the room for Kemi Badenoch. Well, she knows. We got a cheer for yeah. her. Yeah. We haven't had much of a cheer for Rishi Sunak yeah. so far yeah. that I could hear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, mean, as, as I, said, I think what we've been able to demonstrate is the talent that we've got, and you look at look at the opposition. I'm um, not talking a bunch about of nobodies. I, no. Well, maybe that helps them. Yeah. Maybe being boring is quite good after years <laughs> of Boris Johnson. This town, 
devastated, obviously, by the loss of those that, that, that plant and yeah. those jobs. Yeah. And, I, and I talked about that earlier on. Yeah, yeah. You know, green taxes, green jobs. Well, there are a few green jobs in Redcar, but they don't even begin to replace mm. what was lost through steel. We've got everyone in this room paying a 25% surcharge on their electricity bills through environmental and social obligations. We've got British industry, like steel, what's left of it, paying far too much for its energy. Uh, we've got a government that refuses to be self-sufficient on energy. Um, and you're backing Rishi Sunak, who says none of those taxes can come down. What can you offer to people well, at Redcar if Rishi Sunak wins? So I, I, th I think a few things. Firstly, you know, you touched about um, the, the collapse of the steel industry there. Um, one of the reasons, as well as the energy costs that we yeah. face, one of the reasons was the fact that we were still in the EU. And I remember Anna Soubry, whatever happened to her, Anna Soubry saying that... Mercifully, you know, we never hear from well, her exactly. I'm very pleased. <laughs> exactly. Well, I remember Anna Soubry, you know, talking on the TV about the fact that we couldn't intervene because of EU state aid mm, rules. Um, and so, so I think that, that, that has to be recognised alongside it. But I think, you know, when it comes to both of the candidates, you know, they've worked in this government where we set out this long-term strategy for energy security in terms of investing in new nuclear energy and things like that, um, which will benefit Teesside. You know, we've got a, we've got a power station at Hartley pool we want to see a new power station there going forward so I think you know the future is bright but we have to embrace these All new right. technologies but your man Rishi's gonna lose isn't he Liz Truss is gonna win it by a mile isn't she well, I, do, I think, you know, it's all to play for. You know, we've got a, an, an, another, another month um, until, uh, until we find out who the, next, who the next Prime Minister is. And Rishi's been able to tighten some of those polls over the last few days, and I hope he's able well, to... Well, we'll see. But I want to say to you, Jacob Young, one of the youngest MPs in the House of Commons, it does take a certain amount of guts to come on live TV in front of your constituents, and thank you for coming along this evening. <laughs> On the North Sea, this is a very dangerous stretch of coastline. Hundreds of ships have been wrecked here over the years. And earlier on today, I went down to look at the world's oldest surviving lifeboat. So today's Farage at Large is in Redcar, right up here in Teesside, right up on the top of North Yorkshire. We're on the North Sea. It's an old fishing community going back centuries, a seafaring community. And of course, as with all of these coastal communities, has its fair share of tragic history with the sea too. And we're just about to go and visit the world's oldest surviving lifeboat. This predates the RNLI by many, many years. It's the Zetland lifeboat. I've read about it, I've heard about it. It's the first time I've ever got the chance to go and visit. Yes, yeah, so you realise, go back to 1800, Things like the Plimsoll Line hadn't even been invented. Very overladen ships coming through the North Sea, not just British, Dutch, um, Danish, all sorts of other, all sorts of other countries. Um, and so you've got a really serious problem with loss of life at sea. Similarly, fishermen getting into trouble. And this was the, the designer boat they came up with. And it's a big, solid bit of kit. Um, but I have got to tell you, I'm not sure I'd be that happy going in with a set of oars into an open sea in it, but that's what people did. That's what people did. Um, and this, of course, all predating the RNLI. And interestingly, the amount, of the amount of money local people were prepared to put their hands in their pockets to help subsidise things like this says to them that, you know, they realised this community and other communities like it around the country really needed it. So you will not find a better example of a lifeboat dating back to 1802 than what we're looking at here.
I've got to tell you, you, know, you look at the, all the expeditions they went on, you look at the, the images, the pictures, uh, and you realise the incredible things that people will do off their own bat to save others. It's actually quite an inspiring story in many ways. So we can see the guys here with their early cork, quite primitive life jackets. But what I've been told is that you went into the sea, you might be lucky with a cork-like life jacket and be head up, or you might finish up with your legs in the air and unable to turn around. So they were very primitive. It was just a beginning. And we can actually see a very good example of one on the wall just over here. Well, I'm here with the volunteers at Coast Watch, who this is their busy time of year because it's not just big commercial shipping going into the Tees. It's not just, you know, we've got the fishing boats, the commercial fishing boats here. But of course, it's holiday time and the weather's been amazing this week. And the lifeboat was out seven times one day this week because people buy inflatables, kayaks. They have no knowledge of tides or perhaps offshore winds. So it's organisations like this working hand in glove with the RNLI all around this country, but here particularly today in Redka, saving lives all around the country. And all of it done, amazingly, by volunteers. That's a little bit of the history of Redka. And you know what? If you're in the northeast, if you're in Teesside, that little museum, it's a fantastic visit. They've also got the most amazing, beautiful sandy beach here. They just keep it a secret. So Redka, somewhere worth coming to visit. And no one's paid me to say that, I promise you. Now, back to my earlier debate. Immigration, is it still an issue? Or are the great and the good in Westminster right to think that no one cares anymore and we should ignore it? Some of your views. One viewer says, yes, it always will do. Too many people are still coming to the UK. Craig says it's worse than ever. Yes, Craig, actually, in terms of numbers, illegal immigration is totally out of control and legal immigration has reached the highest numbers we've seen since Tony Blair's time. Duncan says, no, Brexit fixed it. Duncan, I wish you were right. I wish Brexit had fixed it, but unfortunately it didn't. Another says, of course, immigration is an issue, along with other EU problems affecting us. Brexit is a huge letdown, says one. Well, I know there are some people that feel that. There is more to be done. Gavin says, stupid question, Nigel, of course it is. Right, now, I talked a moment ago about steel, and indeed we talked with Jacob Young about steel. And I'm joined by Brian Dennis, former steel worker and, of course, former Labour councillor as well. You'd had a shutdown, I think, in 2010, hadn't you? A temporary shutdown. When the steelworks finally closed, was it still the most huge shock? Well, it, well, it was. Um, the loss of 3,500 jobs direct, thousands more in the uh, pipeline uh, feeding into it, them jobs were decent, well-paid jobs where people could actually feed the families, look after the families, and they're just not being replaced. Um, so it was absolutely devastating for the area. You look at uh, the money you earn, it puts money in your pocket, you've got money then to spend in the local shops, so the local economy thrives, and when that's taken away from you, you're still paying the bills, well, maybe you're not going to cinema, maybe you're not going out to the restaurant. That goes... We've seen the high street in Redcar uh, with the boarded-up shops. Part of that is because people had less money to spend. And I guess someone like this, the Workies Club, would have been a lot busier. Absolutely, would have been. It's a huge venue, nice venue. Yeah. But I guess what's done is done, Brian, or do you see any way back for the steel industry in this country? Um, 
within the country, I think it's paramount that we look after what's left uh, up in Scunthorpe and up in Wales. We have to. It's just a strategic asset. Um, as for Teesside, I don't think we'll ever see it back again on Teesside, um, which is an absolute crime with all the history that's been there. Um, I know at the start, the, the Labour, uh, the, sorry, the, the Conservative Mayor spoke about possibilities mm. uh, of bringing it back. Um, maybe that it was a sound by people wanted to hear. I didn't believe it then and I certainly don't believe it's coming back now. And do the Labour Party offer any hope to areas like this? I have to be fair, I don't think they do. And you as a former Labour councillor saying that? Yeah. Brian, you sound pretty disenchanted with the whole thing. Well, I, well, I, well, I am. Um, we look what's going on uh, down on the Steelworks old site now. Uh, the the stripping it, the cleaning it, the getting ready for the industry that's coming. We've been promised 20,000 jobs, um, and only last week, one of the companies that was going to provide 2,000 direct jobs and thousands more within the pipeline GE um, have pulled out, and they've said they're pulling out because of the lack of uh, want for the product. Um, so, you've got the government tell us they've got a green initiative going on and we want wind power and all the rest of it. You've got a company who builds the blades, who we're going to invest in Teesside with yeah. millions of pounds and bring the jobs, and them jobs are not coming now. And what did Ben Houchin say? If you snooze, you lose. A throwaway comment. But I think it's a lot more important than throwaway comments. And people who are in charge should be looking to what was the problem, why don't they want to be here, yeah. and, and, and make sure that the deals think, are getting signed. I think that is a cry for help on behalf of people working in this region, people who worked in traditional industries. Brian Dennis, you've made it very passionately. I hope people in London listen, because it's very, very important. Thank you. Thank you. As you know, a regular feature of these programmes is Barrage the Farage. And we do it here. It's live with an audience. They put their questions in. They get picked out. They get the chance to come and ask them. And I do my best to answer them, but I don't know what they're going to be. But I do know, first up, we've got Alan. Alan, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Nigel, do you think it is hypocri hypocritical to deny the Scots a referendum to leave the UK after gaining the referendum to leave the EU? No, because they had their referendum on leaving the UK. They had it in 2014. Everybody agreed. It was a once in a generation lifetime, and that was agreed by Alex Salmond and the nationalists and the people on the unionist side. Um, and guess what? Nicola Sturgeon is now defining a lifetime as eight years. Funny, isn't it? Nicola Sturgeon doesn't accept the result of a 2014 referendum on separation, doesn't, affect, doesn't actually respect the result of the 2016 referendum on leaving the European Union. And look, I think there are some in England who are beginning to get rather bored with all of this because uh, we keep hearing this story, we keep having this debate, and maybe, just maybe, what the government should do is face Sturgeon down and say, right, you have that referendum, because I'm pretty certain that in another referendum, the Scots would still vote to stay with the United Kingdom. That is my view, but I'm also conscious of a growing number of English people who simply couldn't care less 
whether Scotland stayed or not, and it's only fair that I reflect that. What say you? I think if the English had been given a vote at the time that they voted, perhaps they would have been out now. I honestly do. So uh, you, you've had enough of Scotland, have you? I've never, I've never lived in Scotland. I, uh, I'm ex-UKIP, and I actually stood as a, a candidate in, in the last election okay. up there, but just as a paper candidate. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they should be given another chance of voting again in a referendum. I cannot understand that they wish to take back control and then give it to the EU. No, nor could I. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. No, Alan, thank you. Thank you. If, they, if they wish to make their bed, then they have to lie. No, Alan, thank you. I get it. And I think at some point in time, just to stop the noise from Nicola Sturgeon, we may have to face her down. Thank you. Let's move on to Clive. Clive, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Do you think the mechanism for choosing a leader, as in the current situation, is flawed, stroke, rigged? And should it be the member should be given four candidates and not two candidates? Well, I have to say to you, Clive, maybe there's a bigger question people are asking themselves in pubs and clubs up and down this land tonight as we speak, which is, why is it only 160,000 people who get to choose the next Prime Minister? We've got about six, I think, in this great big crowd in this room. Um, and people feel a bit alienated. I mean, we had TV debates, a couple of TV debates, and they were cancelled, upon which almost no-one watching could actually have a vote. So, that debate. I think, as far as the Conservative Party is concerned, look, guess who's got through? The Foreign Secretary and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Isn't that a really big shock, Clive? Aren't you really, really I'm shocked amazed. and surprised? It, look, it's all a bit of a nonsense. Trust is going to win. Whether she keeps to her promises remains to be seen. Thank you. <laughs> Let's go to Diane. Diane, good evening. Hi. <laughs> um, when Boris Johnson made his final speech in the House of Commons, he finished off with, Asta Luista, baby. Yeah. Um, do you think... I'll see you later. Do you think that's his final... Did you think he'd make a comeback? And how <laughs> do you think he'd do, set a comeback up? Well, there, are, there is speculation about, you know, political comebacks, and you're talking to somebody here who came back, having said he'd never do it again. <laughs> yeah. A little bit like Steve Rev, Redgrave rowing. You know, if you ever see me again <laughs> in this boat, shoot me. I don't think Boris will come back, and I'll tell you why. Uh, for all, all his good qualities, and, and, you know, Jacob talked about his good qualities, which he does have. He can be quite fun and entertaining, and he did get one or two big calls right. Do you know something? What broke between Boris and a huge number of people in this country is something called trust. And once that trust has gone, I don't think it can ever come back. Yeah. Do you? No, I agree. Mm. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Let's go to... CJ. CJ. Hi, Nigel. Good evening. Hi. Um, right, when you were watching the results coming in from the 2019 general election, uh, what was your reaction when Red Cup was declared and it went Tory? I don't think I'd better repeat the words on <laughs> live television. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, you know, I, could see, I could see through my campaigning in the North East that, that there was change in the air. Uh, but I didn't, and I never thought it would go quite as far as seats like Redcar. I think this and Bishop Auckland were the two that really, really surprised me more than anything else. Uh, but in a sense, I was delighted because what I wanted Brexit to do was to bring us a completely new kind of politics. 
and all it's really done is just change the colour of governments a little bit, and it doesn't feel to me like things have really changed enough. So I think, I, I think we're, we're still on a journey where, where the implications of Brexit need to be followed through. There's more to be done. W what about you? Um, well, after my jaw had hit the floor, I think it was hysterical laughter, really, because I thought if Redka can go, anything can happen. Yeah. Well, so. and that's a good thing in democracy, that, that, that it can sometimes surprise us. So yeah. it did that night, it certainly did. But unfortunately, the Tories have been a bit of a masterclass in how to waste an 80-seat majority, haven't they? <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. And finally, Ted, who is known to me from, the, from my past campaigns. Hi, Nigel. Hi, Ted. Good to see you again. Uh, do you believe Boris Johnson delivered the Brexit you and your UKIP members fought for and 17.4 million people voted for? If, like me, you don't think he has, what does the next Prime Minister need to do if anything at all can be done? Oh, we can do whatever we like. We're a free country. We can make whatever decisions we choose to make. The answer is no. You know, we got to a point in 2019 of Brexhaustion. We'd had enough. The Remainer attempts to force a second referendum and everything else, there was a, a feeling of getting something over the line as a deal. It was far from perfect. I said at the time it was far from perfect. Uh, if it was oven ready, well, I'm not quite sure what the meal was. But, but so I understand why it was done as it was. I do, actually, in the end. But to say... You know, Brexit's done. No, it isn't. Brexit isn't completed. It's not yet a proper Brexit. We haven't got back control of our borders. Part of our country, Northern Ireland, is effectively cut off, annexed virtually from the rest of the country. And if you look out of that window over there, you'll see something called the North Sea. And you'll see a diminished fishing fleet. Here, at Redka, they're going out catching crab and lobster, and that's fine. There's barely a boat here catching whitefish because we haven't taken back our territorial waters in the way that Norway has. Ted, there is a huge amount more to do, uh, and we have to show people the benefits of Brexit. We haven't yet fully and properly done that. There are areas like the vaccine rollout, like taking the lead on Ukraine, whether you agree with the position or not, but areas where you can see that Brexit Britain is now standing a bit taller on the world stage. There's a heck of a lot more to do. And if the Conservative Party and the new leader doesn't get that message, they will, in my opinion, not hold these seats in the northeast of England next time round. What say you? Well, I certainly agree with your last comments there. Um, if they don't get the finger out, they will lose lots of seats. They've got borrowed votes on the promise of getting Brexit done. They've only got it part done, and the bigger part of it needs doing. And whoever does take over from Boris, they need to really sit down and think and look at what Brexit should be and then start working on it, because if they don't, we'll end up with Labour in back in control. And, um, you know, I prefer that we had a, a really good third-choice uh, party to vote for, but sadly, um, since the demise... And UKIP did their job, got us out of it. There's no one yeah. else to vote for. Um, it's, it's really a problem. But we haven't got Brexit done, and people no. are very disappointed. I, I think there's a sense of frustration. Ted, an old campaigner, we've worked together in the past. Lovely to see you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much indeed. It is time for Talking Pines, and I'm delighted to be joined by dance legend Wayne Sleep. Wayne, welcome to Talking Pines. Cheers, I can just about reach it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's bigger than me. <laughs> Cheers. 
For those that don't know, Wayne is five foot two. But and you... shrinking. <laughs> but being five foot two hasn't stopped you doing anything, has it? No, I mean, it was a terrible thing, cos um, I was brought up in Hartlepool in County Durham, and um, I'm from Plymouth, but we moved here when I was five years old. And I went to um, a dance school, and I wanted to be Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly or something like that. And funny enough, I've just booked an hotel in Middlesbrough here, and when we were coming through Middlesbrough, I think I saw the old Methodist Hall, where I, I did the song and dance competition when I was eight, um, a bit of tap dance, saying five foot two eyes are blue. How fortuitous! <laughs> but the, the adjudicator rang a bell. It's all Middlesbrough's fault. And she rang a bell, and they said, "Where's this boy's mother? He must learn ballet." We'd never heard of ballet. We'd never been to ballet. And my mother said, "Ballet never." But I started learning ballet. I I was um, in the West Hartlepool Tech, in as hooker in the scrum. And I was transferred to you'd Queen... Never, you'd never been prop, would you? No. <laughs> I knew what to do in the middle of that, I'll tell you. It wasn't nice. But anyway... <laughs> but we usually got the ball out my side, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but um, I went to the West Hartlepool Tech, and I ended up in Queen Victoria's Hunting Lodge in Richmond Park at the age of 12, where I only learnt ballet, and then I didn't grow. Whereas I could have been a nice song and dance man, but it all came round in the end. And, and really, it is to do with getting the negative and turning it to be positive mm. in life. Mm. And that's why I tell all the kids when I do workshops all around the country, I try and aim, you know, because so many people want to put you down all the time, don't you find? I mean, there are bullies all over the place, and there are bullies in government bullying each other. That's all I ever see. Well, don't you think, in a way, there's because of online, yes. there's now probably more bullying going yes. on than there's ever been before, actually. Yes. I mean, there's horrible stuff that gets yeah. said. Well, I, do, I don't do that bit. I only don't just you? do the bit when I'm performing and stuff like that, because I've heard a lot of uh, people who are well-known like me do get hate mail a oh, lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so you must sort of, get some. You're still... Oh, I've had loads. I bet I've had have. more than all anybody. <laughs> I seem to be... People either really like me very much indeed yes. or not at yes, all. Yes, well, that's it. But I can live with that, you so know. I mean, it yes. didn't bother me. Yeah. Um, so you, you were kind of a Billy Elliot figure then almost, weren't you? Yes. Well, I mean, the coal mines were still going when I was in the 50s yeah. here, so we didn't really have this kind of condition that seems to have hit red cars since the steel steel places are all closed. I mean, it's just desperately bad. Um, and it wasn't until afterwards they did the Billy Elliot story, but um, Lee Hall, who um, wrote the play um, and the film, um, said to me one day, he said, I did base it on your autobiography. I'm sure. Because it was a boy getting out of a lower working-class situation and being transported almost and given a chance in life. And, and ballet... I mean, how many years were you there at the Royal Ballet? Blah, 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 blah. Um, I was 18 years with the Royal Ballet as a senior principal, which was only six of us, and um, I wasn't going to get in the company. And you have to be five foot seven is the smallest height for a man. And um, the, the founder of the company, I was going to take hormones to make me grow. I was desperate. Eight years training, and I wasn't going to go anywhere. And so I decided to take hormones and all that, but they hadn't advanced them enough, and they were very tricky sort of pills to take. Yeah. 
and so she said you're just going to have to spin twice as fast as everybody else and jump twice as high so well that's what that's had what to you happen. did no yeah. i um, mean you, be you become an absolute dance legend and dancing itself is just so popular today isn't it Very oh it's wonderful now television shows and yeah. i mean it really is the power of dance when i was at the royal ballet school there were five boys to 20 girls in each class. The boys got away with murder, I'll tell you, <laughs> because they needed us so much we could get away with... Well, I won't go there. But anyway, so, but, I mean, we did, you know, drop subjects, GC ones and all that. But um, the main thing was to be brilliant at dance. And the discipline of doing dance as well is incredible. Now, it was five boys to 20 girls, now it's 50% boys at the Royal Ballet yeah. School and 50% girls. I mean, that is a huge turnaround. And the training for the boys now, I mean, they are rocketing sky high. I mean, I'm glad they couldn't do what I could do in those days, everybody, but a lot of them could do what I did then now. Yeah. A lot more. Physically. Yes. Yes. Pre pretty demanding time. Oh, no. It's an hour and a half class, an hour and a half ballet class every morning. No matter what you've done the night before, you might have had a premiere in New York. We used to do three months tours of America, eight shows a week, Hollywood Bowl, San Francisco Opera House, then back to St. Louis, 120 degrees. But you always have to be in class the next morning. Else in a couple of weeks, the seams will show. And you can't do without it. And you're always learning. Never think you know it all. And, and you've you gone, know. but you've gone, you know, you've done that high art form. Yes. But you've also been in the Big Brother household and done, oh, all, yes. and done all sorts of television. Money I mean... makes the world. <laughs> <laughs> but you have done an enormous amount of TV, yes. acting, and do you enjoy diversifying? Well, the thing is, if I'd stayed with the Royal Ballet, I would have ended up probably doing a Tarantella for the rest of my life, following myself around a little pond. And I knew that I had to get well-known. And to get well-known, television is the only way to do it. Yeah. And so I started appearing on Morecambe and Wise and things like that. And I was in Lina Zavaroni's dance shows. And I did everything, basically, Bruce Forsyth. And that made my name popular so that when I wanted to do my own shows, with high art, jazz, tap, ballet and contemporary, which was the first time in one show you could see all those things at a very high level, I knew that I had to have a name and I knew that if I stayed with the Royal Ballet, I'd probably be a little teacher somewhere now doing something, but I mean, I would have enjoyed it. Yeah. But I still had... I hadn't reached the height of my talent. And so I had to carve away for myself. And the only way to do it is, like you said, being things like the Big Brother house. Yeah, well, no, it's worked for you. It's worked incredibly yeah, well. Yeah. But it's worked so well, Wayne, that it's put you in a, in a, a comfortable position. Yes. Um, yes. And a position where you can give something back, which yes. I think, I think, the, I think the, the Wayne Sleep Foundation is... Um, my foundation started on the anniversary of Princess Diana's death. Who, who you old. famously got to know? Yes. Well, I got this phone call one morning and I said, who's this? And she said, it's Diana. I said, Diana who? I don't know any Dianas. She says, Wales, <laughs> the Princess of Wales. And she said, I want you to come to the studio. So I went to this little studio. I didn't know what it was about. And she was there. Oh, she was so beautiful, you know. And she blushed when she looked at me under her eyes and yeah. it flickered like this. You know the look. And um, she had her headband on, her pink leotard, her tights, 
her leg warmers and her jazz shoes. And she says, I want you to dance with me at Christmas at Covent Garden. And I looked up at this towering inferno and I went, I don't think so, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said to her, oh, do you mind if I sit down? I've had a rather late night. And she went, you naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> and when I realised she had a sense of humour, I realised that ah, we could do a one-upmanship. And we did a three and a half minutes. She had the music. She wanted to know what I was going to wear. We did it to Billy Joe's Uptown Girl. Yep. And even now, people talk about it who've never seen it. And there was no film of it, but there's lots of photographs. But I think, in a way, it was a sign of her departure from the mainstream yeah. and, and going on her own way just to be, you know, independent in a and way. And, of course, The Crown, famously... Oh yes, they did, oh, yes, they did it, didn't they? They did it, absolutely. Yes. He was quite good. <laughs> he should have asked you. No, he was, but no, 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 he was very But she, of course, did amazing charitable, charitable work, didn't she? And fantastic yes. things. Well, that's where did. we used to meet a lot. And you're now doing that through Bernardo's and all that stuff. Now, with the foundation, yeah. um, I knew that she loved kids. And uh, so, on the anniversary, I named it Memoriam of her. And it was a dance scholarship at first, but now it's a foundation that gives top-up grants, um, to top up their grants for um, accommodation. So, over a three-year period, I will provide the accommodation <coughs> for... You see, if you're in Leeds and you get a scholarship in London, where do you live? Yeah. And if the parents um, fall foul, like, you know, your dad goes out of work because a steel works closed, something like that, yeah, it's yeah, happened yeah. at all, yeah. I get called by the um, vocational colleges and then I help them out. And it's a good... And it's, it just fills a gap which nobody really thinks about. And also now, cos so much of the money and the grants come from education, they want to see a certificate. So you have to do a degree to be a dancer now, which I think's crazy, actually. Yeah, so do I. You know, and, and they've got to work at night, they've got to do a thesis and all that. I mean, you know, I don't qualify to be a teacher cos I haven't got a teaching diploma. I don't have a degree in teaching. Well, yeah, I know, that sounds crazy. It's but... crazy, but I, I do. I call yeah. it um, a, a day of inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, over half a century of you know, being at the top of your game, doing the remarkable things that you've done, varied career with TV, as I said, acting, dancing, ballet, yes. all sorts of things. What's the best bit being of it all? Oh, you are horrible. I don't know. Um, the best bit sitting with you? No. No! <laughs> I think the best bit is being able to turn round, being five foot two, which you'd never get into a ballet company at that height now, probably, and being... not taking no for an answer. And when I said to Margot Fontaine, who was one of the greatest ballerinas of the world, I said, what is it that was the secret? Were the choreographers? Was it the teaching? Was it Rudolf Nureyev? I said, no, none of that. The word is, Wayne, tenacity. Yeah. Staying power. And that's what I learned at a very early age, and I think that's what I'll congratulate myself about, having looked back on my career. Well, you know what? All of us in this room here and watching on television and listening on DAB <laughs> Radio will say the same. Wayne Sleep, what a pleasure to have you on Talking Thank you Enjoy coming to Red Car. We hope Red Car's enjoyed us coming to them. But we're not quite finished yet. 
I will be on the 4th of August, that's two weeks from now, down in West Sussex at Bognor Regis. Farage at large in Bognor Regis in two weeks' time. If you want to come to Bognor in two weeks' time, go to the GB News website, gbnews.uk, and go there right now. Now, we like to find a local band, a local singer, to finish the show off. And we've done very, very well here with Platinum the Band, the lads here from this town, and they're going to play. And we thought this was appropriate because there's no doubt that the contest between Sunak and Truss is going to get nasty, it's going to get ugly, so the Kaiser Chiefs, I predict a riot, if it's brought to you by Platinum the Band. <laughs> Thank you. 